John chapter 1, starting in verse 14. Please hear this public reading of God's Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, it is a privilege uh, to gather with Your people on Christmas Eve and to sing uh, Christmas songs, to sing about the Incarnation. What What a privilege it is to sing with Your people on Christmas Eve. And what a privilege to be able to look at this familiar Christmas passage in John's gospel, this incredible passage. And Father, I know this passage is familiar and is much, much loved uh, by so many, but I pray that as we look at this familiar passage, I pray that we would have fresh wonder, fresh amazement as we consider uh, the incarnation of Jesus. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Kevin DeYoung, in one of his sermons on John 1, uh, 14, he said he always gets a little extra enthusiasm to preach a text like this, he said, it's so grand and so glorious, so you have extra enthusiasm on the one hand, but he said, on the other hand, he has a little bit of extra trepidation, he said, because you know that you're not equal to the task. And I, I feel the same way. I feel excited. This is what a great text. But on the other hand, it's like there's not words adequate in the English language to do justice to this passage. But I do hope that we will be stirred afresh as we consider the incarnation today. I will also say at the outset that I'm just going to scratch the surface of our text. I mean, there's just so much in this passage of Scripture. We're really just going to scratch the surface, mainly going to focus in on just verse 14. And I don't know if anybody in here has led a Bible study before or taught the Bible before somewhere. And if you were studying a passage that you were going to teach on, I don't know if you've ever run into an issue studying that passage. Probably you have. I mean, almost anybody who's taught the Bible would say, man, I'm struggling on this thing. And I don't know what you do in that, when that happens to you. I know we want to pray, certainly in, in those cases, pray for understanding. I know Charles Spurgeon once said that some passages of Scripture only open with the key of prayer. So we want to pray about the passage, and certainly I did that. But for me, I often go to talk to my dad about a passage. If I'm struggling with, wrestling with, he's studied the Bible for so long, I just go and pick his brain about the passage. So we were there several weeks ago. Uh, I was in the driveway with my dad. Our son Michael was playing in the yard, and I was like, Dad, man, I'm preaching on Christmas Eve. Great text, John 1, 14 to 18. There's just so much in this passage. It's dense. I'm just having a hard time figuring out what to do with it. I'm just so much there. How can I fit it into an outline, essentially, is what I said. He doesn't have a Bible with him, and so he just paused, he's paused, and he just started thinking. He knows the passage pretty much by heart, so he just starts thinking about it for a few minutes, and then, you know, the wheels start turning in his brain, and then he, start, he starts talking about the passage. If you ever talk to my dad about the Bible, he gets very excited about the Bible, so he starts going, you know, he starts quoting me all this stuff. He's quoting me one of the early church fathers about the incarnation. He's talking about Moses. He's talking about the glory in the Exodus, and he's just going on and on. It's very helpful stuff he's, he's saying to me. He said, hold on. He runs inside. He looks through his files. He finds, like, a file where he'd prepared a sermon on John 1, 14 to 18. Now, he said he's never preached John and never preached John 1, 14 to 18. He said, you always had to have Christmas sermons ready. So my dad prepared way in advance. We had this one that he never preached. He gave it to me. He went through some of the stuff with me. Very helpful. I'm going to use one of his stories today. But then he said this, what really helped me. He just said, reminded me, you know, you can't say everything there is to say about any, any text. So we really try to focus in on, the, on some certain things and really drill into those things. And that really kind of cleared the fog for me, helped me just get an outline of, okay, I'm just going to fixate on the incarnation today. So I'm thankful that my dad helped me out on that. So four points all revolving around the incarnation. Point number one, 
the wonder of the incarnation. Point number one, the wonder of the incarnation is the first point. Kevin DeYoung, again in his sermon, he said, we love this text. We love to read it at Christmas time. We love to hear it read at Christmas time. He said it just kind of has a familiar cadence. It just flows. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We love it. We love the way it flows. But Kevin DeYoung asked some questions for us. He said, have we really thought about these words in John 1, 14? Have we really meditated on them? Have we really drilled into them until our brain begins to hurt? And I would add, have we really drilled into them until fresh wonder is stirred in us? So I hope we can at least fixate and focus in and drill into them a little bit. And I hope, again, wonder will be stirred. Another pastor said that he often turns to John 1, 14. He said, around Christmas time, why? To, he said, rekindle the wonder in his own soul as he thinks about what happened that first Christmas a little over a year ago, you, many of you may have been here. We had Liliana's memorial service right here in this room. And uh, if you remember that service or if you saw it online later, my dad started that service out. And he started by reading uh, a select variety of passages from the Old Testament. And if you've ever heard my dad read Scripture again, uh, man, he does a great job. He, he's given himself to the public reading of Scripture for so long. He just did a great job reading through all these passages of Scripture from the Old Testament. I've gone back and just watched just my dad's portion since then. But he went through all these rich passages. I mean, on that day, I mean, you're thinking about death and eternity, the good news of the gospel. They, those passages landed like with extra sweetness and force, forcefulness. But after he finished the Old Testament, he paused and he said something like this. He said, between the end of the writing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the writing of the New, the most wonderful event that has ever happened, happened. Jesus was born. And Jesus changed for the better. All that is important in life and death and immortality. And then he went through uh, New Testament readings. But man, that, that'll give me chill bumps. I love that. Between the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New, this most wonderful event that's ever happened, happened. Jesus was born. The sheer wonder of the good news of Christmas time. J.C. Ryle says that every birth of a living child is a marvelous event, but never since the world began was a birth so marvelous as the birth of Christ. The blessings it brought into the world were unspeakable. Mark last Sunday preached on John 1, 1 to 13, and I was talking to him this week, and he was saying that he could have spent the entire time on John 1, 1. I mean, there's so much in John 1, 1. And Mark talked about how amazing John 1, 1 is. It is. It's extraordinary, that verse. But Sinclair Ferguson said, as amazing as John 1, 1 is, he said John 1, 14 is even more amazing than John 1, 1, this bombshell of a verse. So why is John 1, 14 more amazing than John 1, 1? Well, the question is, who is the word that became flesh in John 1, 14. So we'll go back and we'll read John 1, 1 to remind ourselves who this word is that became flesh. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. <laughs> the word refers to him who is nothing less than God. The one who lies in the manger is himself God. I mean, this is extraordinary. Let me just read John 1, with John 1.14 back to back. So you can, you can just see the wonder of, of, of the incarnation. John 1.1 1, 1 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we can begin to see how wonderful and amazing the incarnation is that the God Himself became flesh. Now look at verse 3. Verse 3 of John 1 says this, All things were made through Him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's amazing. 
The word by whom all things were made becomes part of the world that he himself has made. He was in the world. The world was made by him. I mean, just think about that. He's in the world, a little infant. Mark just read Luke chapter 2. I love the, I love the story in Luke 2. I love the shepherds in Luke 2. They hear this good news, and they make haste to, to make it to Bethlehem. They knock on doors probably. We don't know how long it took, and eventually they find Mary and Joseph. But they're not there to see Mary and Joseph. They're there to see Jesus, and they find Jesus lying in this feeding trough. One of the shepherds, they could have come over. They could have grabbed Jesus and picked him up in their hands, this little baby, this infant. And this infant is the one who made the world. It takes your breath away. So as we think on the majesty of Jesus, just for a minute here, next few minutes, just thinking about the majesty of Jesus, I think the wonder of the incarnation will will grow. The incarnation begins to amaze us when we learn who it is who has come. So three places to go to, lots of places to go to, three easy places to remember because they all, first chapter, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, all easy to remember to go to about the majesty of Jesus. So we just looked at John 1, 1 and 3. Here's a parallel passage in Colossians 1 where Paul says this about Jesus. Verses 15 and 16 of Colossians 1, Paul says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Very similar to what John says. John, in John 1, 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Paul says, For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. I remember a pastor preaching on Colossians 1, and he, he gave this creative illustration that I'm going to steal and just kind of make it my own, but here's the, I'll steal his creative part of the illustration. You say you go outside, and uh, maybe there's a ladybug flying around. Our son Michael loves to like, grab bugs and hold on to them. Maybe you pick up a ladybug, and you hold it in your hand, and the creative part of this illustration would be you flip that ladybug over, and on that ladybug, it'll say, made by Jesus. And say a, a hummingbird comes flying in. I love hummingbirds, and you occasionally see them in Georgia. And it comes whipping in quick and is out of there in a flash. Usually their heart rate is, is pounding over a thousand beats per, per minute. It's extraordinary. His, his wings are flapping, I think, 70 uh, beats per second. It's just extraordinary wind, fl- wind flaps. And he goes in and out. Say you could grab that hummingbird and take a look at it. It would say, made by Jesus. Now you hop in the car and you head on a, a road trip like Mark and I did several years ago, and you get to the Grand Canyon. Mark and I got there with, this, with several other guys. It was sunset. We wanted to make sure we could make it to, to get there when we could see the sun before it dropped behind the canyon. And we were, literally were running through the woods. And you run through the woods, and you get out there, and you see the Grand Canyon in person. I mean, nothing can, 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 can prepare you for that. I mean, it literally took my breath away. I don't think any of us spoke for a few minutes. You are stunned by the beauty of the Grand Canyon, and you look at the Grand Canyon. It's made by Jesus. Think the whole world is made by Jesus. Now, quickly jump outside and think about the sun, 93 million miles away. One million earths could fit inside the sun. And if you could get close enough to the sun, which you can't, but if you could, it would say made by Jesus. And I've looked at this before, but one of the largest known stars, UY Scuti, I think is how you pronounce it. It's extraordinary the size of this thing. It's like a red supergiant star and apparently about 5 billion, 5 billion with a B of our suns could fit inside this massive star. And if you could get to that star, it would say made by Jesus. One other thing I would say, I was trying to find out how many stars, how many stars in the universe and lots of answers are given. We don't know for sure, but here's one estimate. This may be a low estimate. They take, take an average galaxy like the Milky Way galaxy has about 100 billion stars. And you multiply that by the number of galaxies that we know, and there's maybe about 2 trillion galaxies. So 100 billion by 2 trillion, the number is an absolutely astounding number. There are approximately 200 
billion trillion stars in the universe. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. And Jesus made every single one of them. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. I mean, this is extraordinary. The one who sustains and made all things became flesh. I mean, it absolutely blows your mind. I mean, I was doing sermon prep, I was just thinking, just letting my mind run, thinking about all that he has made, and you just get emotional. It's just absolutely staggering when you think about the majesty of Jesus. The wonder of the incarnation will grow. John says the most startling and incredible thing that he could have said. He says, quite simply, this word which created the world has become a person, and with our own eyes we saw him. So as we think about who Jesus is, that will begin to rekindle the wonder of the incarnation. Several weeks ago, we had uh, my book club, and at my book club, uh, I asked this question, something like this. Uh, you think about Christmas time. It's so easy to get caught up with secondary things, good things at Christmas, but I, my question was, how do we not lose the wonder? How do we not lose the wonder of Christmas? How do we not lose the wonder of the incarnation? And I don't, don't want to embarrass anybody, but I'll start. Zach Petty gave, gave an answer, and he said, one of the ways we, we don't lose the wonder is by singing. Singing hymns is how we don't lose the wonder. And I agree wholeheartedly with that. Just singing about the incarnation. When we sing, it causes us to slow down. Those words percolate in the brain and it begins to stir us. And I think the song that Zach mentioned was this line that says, Who could have dreamed or ever foreseen that we could hold God in our hands? So you sing about the incarnation. I thought about the line, Lord of the universe, breathing the dust of earth. So we sing as a way to rekindle the wonder. And then uh, another Zach, Zach Hutzel. I uh, don't want to embarrass him, but Zach Hutzel sa said this. Again, I'm not going to get this exactly right, but this is basically what I remember from what Zach Hutzel said. He can correct me uh, later, but this is what he said. He said he grew up in church, and he grew up hearing about the incarnation. He grew up hearing about John 1.14, and just, you know, just, you just get accustomed to it. But he said fairly recently he was out, he was sharing his faith with one of his coworkers who's not a Christian, and he was trying to, you know, have his coworker understand Christianity and the incarnation. And this is what his coworker, who's not a Christian, said to Zach. He said, so you're saying that the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the one who is upholding you and me right now while we're talking, you're saying he became flesh? And Zach was like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. It's almost as if this, his, Zach's friend is saying, if this is true, this is extraordinary. He's seeing something of the wonder, if it's true. And so we share our faith as a way to maybe stir up fresh wonder in us as someone else has begun to maybe click for the first time. I think about our son, Michael, who's four. One time he just burst out at the dinner table and just said, God has a body, he said, like with an exclamation point. Even a four-year-old is, is baffled by the wonder of the incarnation. So point number two, point number two, the reality of the incarnation, the reality of the incarnation. This is going to be very clear from, from the text. The reality of the incarnation. Let me read again verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I mean, it's so clear from the text, the reality of the incarnation and the Word became flesh. The incarnation is a reality in time, space, history. A guy I was listening to recently, he said the incarnation is not a, not a myth. It is a fact of history. The Word became flesh. He did not, Jesus did not masquerade as flesh. He did not pretend to be flesh. No, he actually became flesh flesh in space-time history. And again, most of us probably know this, but 14 again, verse 14, the beginning, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word here for dwelt among us literally means tabernacled amongst us. 
The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. That's what this word means. It's the idea of uh, the language of pitching your tent. Jesus took on flesh and tabernacled amongst us. That's what the word means. It's a reference in Hebrew to the tabernacle, to the tent of meeting. Later becomes the temple when it's put into stone. So if you remember the tabernacle, you can read about it in Exodus, second half of Exodus. The tabernacle was built by God's command. Why? In order that his dwelling place might be established with his people. That's the tabernacle. The immediate presence of God dwelling amongst his people at the tabernacle. The Old Testament tabernacle is where God moved in and lived with his people. Listen to Exodus 29, verses 45 and 46. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So the immediate presence of God at the tabernacle dwelling amongst his people. Now when we come and we read John 1, verse 14, it's as if John is saying, God has come to take up residence among his people once again but in a way even more intimate than when he dwelt in the midst of his people in the tabernacle. Sinclair Ferguson says this, all that stuff that Moses wrote down about the tabernacle and the ways in which it looked forward to the temple and all the ritual that went along with it, it's only a shadow. Jesus is the reality. Jesus is the reality. The reality has come in Jesus. The illustration that I've used before, and I stole this from John Piper, it's so helpful to me. It's really designed for children, but it's been so helpful for me. And if you, you may be able to relate with this story, if even when you were a kid, I don't know if you ever got separated from your parents uh, in a store somewhere. It happened to me when I was a kid, maybe five. I was playing hide and go seek, I think, with, with my older brother, Chris. And I was hiding in clothes, I think, and I came out and everybody's gone. I was like, what in the world? And I tried to retrace my steps. I vividly remember retracing where we were before. They're not there. They're not there. My dad had to go and tell them, you know, you know missing you know, five-year-old. And they announced it on the intercom. You've seen a boy with, like, I think a red jacket or something. And somebody grabbed me and they got reunited. So that may have happened to you. Or maybe you're a parent and maybe you've lost sight of your kids in a store. That's happened to me too as a parent. I had it with Michael not too long ago. We were in Kroger. They're doing all that work. Or they were at Epps. And I, literally, I was looking this way and I turned around. He's gone. He thought it'd be hilarious to run and hide behind one of the freezers. He literally disappeared. Couldn't find him. I find him laughing behind the, the freezer. So you may be able to relate with this. Here's the illustration. The illustration is a mom shopping in a grocery store with her young son who's five years old. They're down the cereal aisle getting cereal. She's getting it, but there, of course, there's, there's toys that are tantalizing in front of these kids. And this, this little guy sees this toy. Maybe it's a monster truck. He picks this thing up. And he's so fascinated with it. He wants to buy it. He's examining it, looking at it, what he thinks for maybe just a few seconds. And then he looks around and his mom is gone. Nowhere to be found on the, on the left side. No one's there at all. He turns to the right and no one down this way either. And he quickly, he throws the toy back and he gets that uh, lump in the throat. He's some tears start pricking his eyes, and he runs as fast as little uh, five-year-old legs can run. He runs to the end of the aisle, and as he gets to the end of the aisle, he sees on the ground a shadow that looks just like his mom, and it begins to fill him with hope. And this is where Piper would turn to the kids and would say, now, which is better, the hope of, that the shadow brings to the child or the mom coming around the corner? What is better? And of course, the kids are going to say, the mom coming around the corner, that's better. And here's the point of the illustration. Christmas is Jesus coming around the corner. The reality has come. All these other things, they were shadows pointing forward to Jesus, who's the reality. And now he's come in the flesh, the reality of the incarnation. A holy God, fully God, the only begotten Son of God dwelling in the midst of us. Point number three, the reason, the reason for the incarnation, the reason for the incarnation. I think, again, as we think about the reason for the incarnation, it's going to increase the wonder of the incarnation. Again, I go, I'll go back to Zach Hutzel uh, sharing his faith and Zach's friend saying, the one who made and sustained all things, he became flesh. 
It's almost as if you would say, why in the world would the one who made and sustained all things, why would he humble himself to this degree to be born? Why in the world would he do that? And that's the question, why? What's the reason why Jesus would humble himself to this degree? Well, uh, I have to tell a story here. I've told this before a little over two years ago. You may remember it if you were here. You may not. But if you do, it's worth hearing again. It's one of my favorite stories from the life of Martin Lloyd-Jones. It takes place, I think, in the late 1920s. Lloyd-Jones, I believe, was born in 1899. He would have been in his late 20s. He and his wife, Bethan, were recently married. They didn't have any children at the time. They had been invited over to some non-Christian friends of theirs, had invited them over for Christmas to spend Christmas Day with them. Lloyd-Jones had helped their family out in some way, and this family wanted to return the kindness to Martin Lloyd-Jones. So Martin Lloyd-Jones and his wife were there. They spent Christmas morning and lunchtime with them, and then the afternoon they were going to have free, had some free time. And then that evening, there was going to be a lot of people coming for a Christmas party that night. And mainly, I think most of, if not all of them, were going to be non-Christians. And this family are not Christians. So Martin Lloyd-Jones went upstairs. He wanted to relax that afternoon. I think he had a book. He was going to take a nap and read and just relax. And he sat down in this chair to read and relax. But as soon as he sat down, the thought came to his mind uh, that he needed to speak about Jesus that night. And not only did he need to speak about Jesus, he needed to address a very specific question. The question was, why did Jesus come into the world? That's what he needed to talk about. And immediately he rejected. He's like, no way, I'm not going to do that. I am not gonna, I'm a guest here. I'm not going to talk about Jesus tonight. I'm not going to bring up that question. People are going to get offended. People are going to be like, what in the world? No way, I'm not doing it. He just pushed it out of his mind. You know, I just want to go back and read and relax. And he tried to. But he couldn't because the thought came even stronger this time that he really needed to talk about Jesus and address this question, why did Jesus come into the world? And it was basically this wrestling match. And finally, Lloyd-Jones literally got off of this chair. He got down on his knees and he prayed. And he just said, Lord, if you want me to talk about Jesus tonight and this question, I will do it. And so his conscience was now at ease and he enjoyed the rest of the afternoon. And now everybody is gathered there for the party. And Lloyd-Jones knew that he needed to seize his opportunity at the beginning, if he missed it at the beginning, it was going to be much harder if he waited. So he knew at the beginning they were going to listen to a radio program. This is about 100 years ago. They're going to listen to a radio program. And so they did. And as soon as it ended, Lloyd-Jones kind of took the floor and just said, I thought it would be, since it's Christmas Day, I thought it would be a good idea if we maybe just went around the room and different people could try to answer this question. But the question would be, why? Why did Jesus come into the world? And just he opened up the floor so people could begin to discuss that question. And so people began to try to attempt to answer that question. And some people did get offended uh, by this topic. And I think some people left the party never to return, but others stayed and others were engaged as they listened to people try to answer this question. Well, I don't know how long or how many people tried to answer, but apparently nobody, not a single person in that room was able to give an accurate answer as to why Jesus came into the world. And it's just a reminder to me that some people may not know the very basics of our faith and we can simply explain the, the, the reason for the incarnation. They may not know why Christians celebrate Christmas. And so finally, it was Lloyd-Jones' turn to give the real answer to that question. And I mean, I would have loved to have been there to seen him answer this question. I don't know what he said. It doesn't tell us uh, in the biography. It doesn't tell us what he said, but I can only guess what he said. I mean, he is a passionate man who loved the gospel. And my guess is he said something like this. He probably started uh, with our sin, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned against a holy and righteous and good God. And I'm sure he pressed that home. I mean, for real, like we actually have in thought, word, and deed, and God would be completely and totally just uh, to, to condemn us to hell forever uh, for our sins. And certainly he would press this bad news that we've sinned, but then he would bring it up to the good news of why the incarnation, which is Christ Jesus came into the world to save, to save sinners like you and me. This is the good news of Christmas. 
which Mark read in, in Luke 2. The angels announced, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Or the Matthew passage that Greg read, the angel says, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus himself said that his death was the reason why he came in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. For many, we are held captive by our sins, and Jesus has come to pay the ransom price. And I just picture Lloyd-Jones preaching, preaching the good news. I mean, preaching Jesus in that setting. Now, I just want to pause that story for just a second. We'll come back to it. Just pause the story on, on Lloyd-Jones preaching the good news of Christmas. And I want us to think about, again, why Jesus has come. Jab Packer has written this. He says, The crucial significance of the cradle at Bethlehem. So what's the, what's the big significance of the cradle? The crucial significance of the cradle at Bethlehem lies in its place in the sequence of steps down that led the Son of God to the cross of Calvary. And he says, we do not understand it. We do not understand the significance of the cradle until we see it in this context. You see what he's saying? We need to see the cradle in its sequence down that the Son of God took to the cross. It's not just there. No, it's part of a process down that the Son of God took leading to the cross. I mean, he humbles himself to unimaginable depths to be born in a feeding shop. But really, that's just the first step down. It's a massive step down, but that's the first step down. His whole life was a life of humiliation, I think Sproul said. All the way down until he's mocked by his creatures, until he's spit upon by his creatures and flogged by his creatures and then crucified, naked on a cross. That's the low point there. So again, I think, think about the shepherds. I love to think about those shepherds. They hear this good news of great joy and they make haste. They have faith and they make haste to get there. How are they going to recognize the Lord Jesus. I'm sure there's other babies born that night in Bethlehem. How are they going to differentiate Jesus? And the angels, you remember, they said this. Mark read this at the beginning. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. That pretty much rules out almost every other baby. Maybe one or two babies wrapped in swaddling cloths. But then this separates him and lying in a manger. And there's going to only be one baby in Bethlehem lying in such an unspeakable condition at his birth, except for Jesus. So they're going to recognize Jesus by his humility. And they race there. And they, I picture them knocking on doors. Is there a baby in a feeding trough here? And finally, they find him. And they go in there. And they see this baby in the feeding trough. And again, I picture if the shepherds wanted to pick them, this, this baby up, I picture Jesus' arms wriggling around. The way I connect it down is think those same arms will be spread on a cross because he came to pay for our sins. The great idea at the heart of Christianity is that the very Word of God took flesh for man's salvation. I mean, this is wonderful news. Let me just read the passage that, that Greg again uh, read. Galatians 4, uh, 4 and 5. This wonderful, rich passage of Scripture. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. I mean, amazing news. But here's the thing. I borrowed this from another pastor. What if God didn't send his son to redeem? What if he had sent Jesus to judge us in our sins? I mean, God could have chosen to become flesh as a judge, and all of us would have been found guilty before him. We all would have been sentenced to everlasting punishment. But Jesus did not become flesh that way. He did not come as judge. Look at our text, verses 14 and 17. I'll read verses 14 and 17. And the word became flesh of John 1 and dwelt among us. 
and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So Jesus comes, not as judge, but he comes, our text says, full of grace and truth. He comes full of grace and truth. He comes with grace to save sinners, but he comes full of truth, meaning God cannot justly, simply wipe away our sins. He cannot simply sweep our sins under the rug. No, because truthfulness means that our sin must be punished. God's glory has been belittled. His name has been defamed. It's literally his, his, his name is used as a common curse word. It's dragged through the mud of this world and sin must be punished. And he's so gracious towards us. What's he going to do? He comes full of grace and truth. Jesus clothes himself with flesh. He becomes flesh. Why? That he may die. The reason why the word became flesh is so that when the Son of God goes to the cross and dies, grace could abound and truth could be upheld. Truth is upheld because sin is punished and grace abounds because we do not get what we deserve. We get forgiveness of sins and adoption. It reminded me of Romans 3 that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, the same pastor said, this is why he had to have flesh, so nails could go through it. So again, Lloyd-Jones, remember he's preaching, preaching the good news of the incarnation. And uh, what happened was lots of discussion throughout the night. And what you had at the end of that night is you had three people genuinely converted. Three people brought under conviction of sin. Three people opened up, their eyes opened to the beauty of Jesus. They repented of sin and trusted in Jesus over the course of that night. It was late that night. And Martin Lloyd-Jones and Bethan and these three brand new converts, they prayed together. And just what a Christmas that would be. God saves Sinners, Christ Jesus came to save us. Point number four, point number four, our response to the incarnation. Our response to the incarnation. How do we respond to this incredible news? Well, here's the story that my uh, dad gave me. Uh, This is from a man who was born in 1591. He would later become a minister in the Dutch Reformed Church. This story takes place probably about 400 years ago, early 1600s. And listen to his words as he encounters Jesus in John chapter 1. Here's what he writes. My father, who was frequently reading the New Testament and had long observed with grief the progress I had made in infidelity, had put that book, had put the New Testament in my way in his library in order to attract my attention, if it might please God to bless his design, though without giving me the least intimation of it. Here, therefore, I unwittingly opened the New Testament, thus providentially laid before me. At the very first view, although I was deeply engaged in other thoughts, that grand chapter of the evangelist and apostle presented itself to me. He begins to read John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I read part of the chapter. Here's his response. And was so affected that I instantly became struck with the divinity of the argument and the majesty and authority of the composition as infinitely surpassing the highest flights of human eloquence. He knows this is the word of God that I'm reading. Here's how he responds. My body shuddered. My mind was in amazement. And I was so agitated the whole day that I scarcely knew who I was. This is how he responds to the incarnation. He scarcely knows who he he was. Nor did the agitation cease, but continued until it was at last soothed by a humble faith in him who was made flesh and dwelt among us. I just love that man's response. But first, I would say, if you're not a Christian, so thankful you're here. 
And I would say an appropriate response for you would be to have faith in Jesus, to repent of sin, turn with loathing, and rest in Jesus' finished work. What a Christmas Eve that would be to be born again, to experience the new birth. But I think for us as believers, this man's response with amazement, and he's just stunned. he doesn't even know who he is, can just jumpstart us, our amazement. We're just so familiar with the incarnation. We need to be jumpstarted into amazement. So I think for us, we need to be amazed by what we're reading. The quote I've come back to again and again is from Jab Packer, who said, the more you think about the incarnation, the more staggering it gets. I found that to be true. I mean, the more you chew on it, the more stunning it is. Again, I go back to Luke 2. The angels give the shepherds what abundant reason for joy. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So joy, we should respond with joy. The flavor of the Christian life is joy. Another pastor said, how easily, brothers and sisters, we shrug at the old news of the coming of the God-man. It is electric news that ought to thrill our hearts and compel us from these four walls to the ends of the earth to say, I have good news for you. This day a Savior is born, Christ the Lord. That Cutzel's led the way on this, sharing his faith, telling people this good news of the incarnation. And I certainly think, especially us as parents with young kids, we want to tell our kids the good news. We want to tell it with joy and excitement. Jesus has come to save sinners like us. Again, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I mentioned earlier, one writer said this about Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, Martin Lloyd-Jones never got over how far down the Most High God came to save him. He knew himself to be a sinner saved by grace. So that humility is an appropriate response. I hope it could be said of us that we never, ever get over how far down the Most High God would come to save us. And one of the great things about the gospel, borrowing this from another pastor, but one of the great things about the gospel is it's never done amazing us. It's never done overwhelming you. It's like, it's like the ocean with wave upon wave of fresh wonder, fresh amazement wash over us that God the Son would come for the likes of me. Staggering. The last thing I'll say is, I don't know if you open presents on Christmas Eve or you open them on Christmas Day, but when you are opening presents or you're watching presents being opened, we should be thinking to ourselves, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. We should be stirred with thanksgiving as we consider Jesus, the ultimate gift. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, this is a stunning passage in John chapter 1. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, I do pray that you would stir fresh wonder amongst us that the word who made the world becomes part of the world that he himself had made is staggering. But when we think about the cradle, help us to remember that it's part of a sequence down that ultimately led the Son of God to the cross. So Father, I pray that if there are any in this room who do not yet know you in a saving way, I pray that you would convict them of their sin and you would grant them the faith to believe the gospel, that they would see that a Savior truly has come, and that is the good news of Christmas. Father, even now as we sing, I pray you'd be honored by our singing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.